You are listening to the First Tech Podcast. These podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you are not an authorised financial advisor, you may find the content of this podcast difficult to follow as it assumes you have the necessary training and qualifications to understand the concepts discussed. You should also be aware the information contained in this podcast is general information only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances, needs or objectives. Hello and welcome to the latest news podcast, February, where we cover all the latest legislative and regulatory developments advisors need to be aware of. I'm your host, Craig Day, head of the First Tech team, and joining me today are three members of my team. I've got Tim Sanderson, Linda Bruce, and Kim Guest. So today we've got a few different topics that I want to go through. First of all, we're going to very briefly discuss the proposed changes to the stage three two stage three tax cuts. Now we do have a separate podcast on that, so we're just going to touch on that lightly. Second, we'll take a look at what's happening with the different super contribution and pension caps next year and what that may mean for advisors. And hint, hint, we've got some exciting news there. And then we're going to take a look at a recent private binding ruling that is a good reminder of the test the ATO will use to determine whether someone qualifies as a tax dependent for superannuation death benefit purposes. And then finally, we'll briefly discuss Aged Care and the Draft Aged Care Act that was released in December last year. So so let's get started. So first up, we're Talking stage three tax cut changes. Now, just in case you've been living under a rock, we did have the government announce that it would be amending the legislated cuts that were to commence from 1 July this year. Now, the bill containing these changes was introduced into Parliament on the 6th of February and as at the time of recording has passed the House of Representatives and that was on the 15th of February. Now, without going into too much detail, as as I did say, we've got a separate podcast on this topic, the changes will reduce the size of the tax cuts for high income owners by up to as much as approximately 50% and then use those savings to provide tax cuts or increase tax cuts for more people on low and middle incomes. Now, this is going to be achieved by a couple of different things. First of all, reducing the 19% and 32.5% tax rates to 16 and 30% respectively. Also retaining the 37% tax rate, which was going to go completely, but they're going to retain that now. But to increase the marginal tax rate threshold for that from $120,000 to $135,000 and also to increase the 45% marginal tax rate threshold from $180,000 to $190,000. Now, as I said, to find out more about these changes and what they're going to mean for clients, both in the lead up to and post 30 June, then I would recommend you go and listen to the separate podcast that we have available uh, that's being released as part of the February podcasts. Okay, so now moving on to superannuation contributions and the transfer balance cap and what's happening with those for next year. So, Tim, let's start off with the general transfer balance cap. What's happening with that for next year? Is it going up again or staying the same? Well, g'day, Craig. Um, With the release of the CPI data uh, late last month, it was confirmed that the transfer balance cap won't index up to $2 million next year. So it's going to remain at its current level of $1.9 million um, for next financial year at least. Okay, so we know the transfer balance cap only indexes in increments of a hundred grand. So, do we know, like, was it going to be close to increasing to two million? 
Yeah, look, it was reasonably close to two million. The raw figure was approximately one point nine eight million. Um, but whether that means we get an increase to two million in twenty five twenty six, um, that remains unclear because it's really going to depend on what happens with inflation over the next twelve months. Okay, so what does that mean for advisors and their clients? Well, the first thing it means is that the whole question of whether you should delay starting a retirement phase income stream, such as an account-based pension, until after 30 June to ensure the client maximises the benefit of any indexation, that's not going to be a relevant consideration this year. Um, It also means advisors are not going to need to worry about trying to calculate that change to a client's personal transfer balance cap under the proportional indexation rules from 1 July, um, as a client's personal cap next year is going to be the same as this year as well. And also for clients that have cap-defined benefit income streams, it is worth noting that that defined benefit income cap, which is currently 118750 that's going to remain the same next year as well because it's, it's calculated with reference to the general transfer balance cap. All right, terrific. Now, Tim, many advisors may have seen the Firstic News Flash email last week or a couple of weeks ago, depending on when you're listening to this, outlining what is happening with the concessional and non-concessional caps for next year. But for those that didn't, can you outline the exciting news that we've got? Yeah, certainly is exciting news. Um, so with the release of the average wage or AWOTI data that came out uh, a short time ago, we now know the concessional cap will increase from 27500 to $30,000 from 1 July this year. Um, and also the flow-on implication of that is the general non-concessional cap, um, which is four times the concessional cap, will go up to $120,000 as a result. Okay, so if we look at the increase to the concessional cap first, so what's that going to mean from an advice perspective? Well, firstly, it means... Uh, we're really going to need to review concessional contribution levels post 1 July for people who are, you know, salary sacrificing or making personal deductible contributions up to their concessional cap. Um, Taking into account the increased cap, but look, also we'd need to consider the super guarantee rate is going to increase to 11.5% on 1 July. Um, Also, the effective tax-free threshold, uh, if the proposed stage-free tax cut changes do become legislated, Mm -hmm. then from 1 July, that effective tax-free threshold uh, would look likely for many clients to be about $22,500. And then also for people with SMSFs that are using the contribution reserving strategy, uh, it means that they'll need to review contribution levels they make in June, but but which will then be allocated by the 28th of July. Okay, so I guess also with the stage three tax cuts coming through and with those changes meaning more people are going to get a tax cut or an increased tax cut, then more people may also be able to start to salary sacrifice more without reducing their take-home pay. So the increase will need to be, you know, that increase will need to be factored in there as well. Absolutely, yep. yeah. Okay, now moving on to the non-concessional contribution cap increase. So what do advisors need to consider from a strategy perspective there? Well, the first thing advisors obviously need to be aware of is the maximum non-concessional contribution a person can make under the Bring Forward rule will increase potentially to a maximum of $360,000 from 1 July 24. So an extra $30,000. So that's good news. However, there's a trap there, isn't there? As the increase won't necessarily apply to everyone, at least not from the 1st of July. 
Yeah, exactly exactly right. Um, it, it won't apply to members who've already triggered the bring forward rule and are still within their bring forward period on 1 July and for the, you know, 24-25 financial year, mm-hmm. as these members will, will have already effectively locked in their non-concessional cap um, for the duration of their bring forward period. Um, so, as an example, uh, a person who made a $330,000 non-concessional contribution under the bring forward rule last year, um, they'll not be able to make any additional non-concessional contributions until after their bring forward period expires at the end of 30 June 2025. So the increase won't effectively apply to that client for another 12 months. So that's an important strategy con- consideration for this year, isn't it? So if, if an advisor wants to maximise a client's non-concessional contributions using the bring forward rules, they're going to need to consider restricting their non-concessional contributions this year to $110,000 or less just to make sure they don't trigger the bring forward rules this year. Um, and that would then allow them to make non-concessional contributions up to a maximum, as you said before, of $360,000 on or after the 1st of July 2024, taking to, you know, taking full advantage of this increased cap. Yeah, that's right. Um, but we also need to be conscious of their age and their total super balance. So, for example, if they're going to be turning 75 before 30 June and will be ineligible to contribute next year, they may be better off making a non-concessional contribution of up to 330000 this year. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, also, if it looks like a client's total super balance may be $1.9 or higher on 30 June, then they may be better off making a non-concessional contribution this year as their cap may be nil next year. Okay. Now, talking bring forward rules, something weird is happening with the bring forward rule thresholds this year in that they're actually reducing because the non-concessional cap is increasing. So what's going on there? Yeah, it is really a bit odd. Um So without laying out all the detail about the non-concessional cap and bring forward rule, the three thresholds that relate to that rule at the moment are 1.68 million, 1.79 million and 1.9 million. And that top threshold is equal to the general transfer balance cap. So that stays the same next year. Mm -hmm. Those lower two thresholds are then the general cap less either one times or two times the standard non-concessional cap. Um, But with the total transfer balance cap remaining fixed at 1.9 million and the non-concessional cap increasing to 120,000, it flows on that those two lower thresholds will drop to 1.66 and 1.78 million respectively. So advisors are really going to need to be mindful of these reduced thresholds from 1 July for, for clients obviously with large total super balances. Now, it's always hard to remember figures from a podcast. So where can advisor go if they want more detail about this change or any other changes we've talked about so far? Yeah, so head to our website. We've got two articles uh, available on the First Tech site that goes through uh, this in more detail. Or, of course, you can always give us a call if you need any further information. Okay, thanks, Tim. Now, let's move on to a recent private binding ruling that was issued by the ATO on 8 December 2023 concerning whether or not an adult child would qualify as a financial dependent of their deceased parent. Now, for advisors interested in reading this particular PBR, we've included a link in the podcast description below. Now, from a tax perspective, financial dependency is a really important concept as where an adult child can qualify as a financial dependent 
any taxable component included in the death benefit will be tax-free instead of being taxed at rates of up to 15 or 30% plus Medicare levy where that's going to be applicable. Now, generally, an independent child is not a financial dependent for tax law purposes. However, things can get uncertain where a deceased parent was providing financial support to an adult child at the time of death and whether that financial support is sufficient to result in them being defined as a financial dependent. So, Linda, this private ruling serves as a good reminder of how the ATO might interpret what level of support is required to making someone a financial dependent. So can you give us a summary of what's happened in this case? Sure thing, Craig. Um, some details were actually blurred out in this particular private binding ruling, uh, mm-hmm. which is quite common yeah. uh, based on what I've seen from the PBRs published by the ATO. So in this particular one, based on what we can tell, uh, the child appears to be the daughter of the deceased parent. The daughter was over age 18 when the deceased parent passed away. The parents appeared to have separated for a while, and the child was living with the other parent. Let's just call it parent two. So the deceased parent had a binding child support agreement with parent two, which expired when this child turned age 18. However, the deceased parent continued to pay a monthly amount after the expiration of that agreement. Mm-hmm. Now, the child received a monthly allowance uh, from the deceased parent for a period of six months up to the date of death. The deceased parent paid the child's extracurricular school activities and the university fees. The deceased also included this adult child and his private health insurance plan and also paid for the child's out-of-pocket medical expenses. Now, the ATO suggested that the child had a very low levels of taxable income in the period up to the date of death. Okay, so for an adult child who's not living with the parent to be classed as a tax dependent, the child would generally need to be a financial dependent of that deceased parent. Now, in this case, it sounds like the deceased parent did provide quite a lot of financial support to the child, but let me guess... Did the ATO rule that the child was not a financial dependent? That's absolutely correct. Yeah, how did I guess? Yeah, Yeah, exactly right. So this may uh, be a surprise to many, many people, given the level of financial support provided by the deceased deceased person considered by normal standard quite high. Mm -hmm. Uh, However, we do need to examine what it meant by financial dependent. Unfortunately, a financial dependent is not actually defined by the tax law. Therefore, the ordinary meaning as noted in the established case law applies. Mm -hmm. And that's what the confusions come from here, isn't it? As the ordinary meaning can can be quite subjective or is subjective. Therefore, we see a lot of people asking the ATO whether or not someone is a dependent of the deceased when they have been receiving some level of financial support. Exactly, Craig. Dictionaries defines the dependent uh, makes reference to the substantial financial support. 
the ATO often quotes in the private rulings uh, the Malak case, which happened in 1999. So in this particular ruling, the ATO quoted from this uh, Malak case that the relevant financial support is that required to maintain the person's normal standard of living. And the question of fact to be answered is whether the alleged dependent was reliant on regular continuous uh, contribution of the other person to maintain that standard. Okay, so how did the, apply, how did the ATO apply the, that principle in this case? In this case, the child was living with parent two and was mm. not liable to contribute towards the essential household expenses such as mortgage or rates, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. Um, parent two appears to be earning reasonable amount of income in the eyes of the ATO, and the, AT, uh, the parent too can provide uh, substantial financial support to the beneficiary, according to the ATO. Also, the child beneficiary was working part-time and earning income to contribute towards ongoing personal expenses. So the ATO has concluded that although there's some evidence to support that the beneficiary received a reasonable degree of financial support from the deceased parent, it was not considered that financial dependency has been proved. So what I think the ATO really saying here is that to be a financial dependent, there must be more than the mere giving of money. That is, there must be a relationship where the the beneficiary really relies on that you know support coming in for their ordinary living that that's exactly what the ATO indicated in this case Craig the ATO said in the ruling that the beneficiary was not a person who was substantially reliant on regular and continuous financial support from the deceased parent for her ordinary living expenses therefore the beneficiary is not a death benefit dependent of the disease. Uh, Of course, uh, each case needs to be examined individually based on its specific set of circumstances. Some background changes may as well lead to different results as we have seen in many, many other private banning rulings issued by the ATO in the past. Now, that's also interesting because over the years, we've heard some people suggesting strategies to get grandparents to pay for the grandchild's private school fees to make the grandchild a financial dependent. Now, based on what we've seen, I think it'd be unlikely for the ATO to accept that private school fee payments alone are sufficient to prove that the grandchild relies on those payments for their ordinary living. I agree uh, with you, Craig. In this particular case, uh, the deceased parent was actually paying for the daughter's university fees and medical expenses. But in the eyes of the ATO, that was not sufficient mm. enough to prove financial uh, dependency. So, but in any case, like what we said earlier, uh, each case is different. Advisors and clients uh, in that situation, they really should seek independent advice. And if needed, they should apply for their own private banning ruling from the ATO to confirm their own uh, situation. 
Okay, but warning, get ready for a no if there's yeah. not substantial financial support being provided, which the person is really relying on for, for the necessities of life. Now, if advisors want to know more about this topic, uh, please refer to our strategy article, Super Death Benefits, Who is a Dependent for Tax Purposes, for further details. And we'll also provide a link to that article in the podcast description. Now, thanks, Linda. Moving on now to aged care reform. So talking to Kim. Hey, Kim. Hi, Craig. So, Kim, I understand the government has released an exposure draft of the new Aged Care Act, which is due to commence from when? I think it's the 1st of July 2024. Can you give us some background info on where this is up to? Yeah, sure, Craig. Well, a few years ago now, we had a Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety, and they made many recommendations to improve the quality of aged care. And one of those recommendations was that a new Aged Care Act should be implemented. So the government has released an exposure draft for consultation that was released um, back on the 14th of December. And if it is implemented, um, those reforms are expected to commence on the 1st of July 24, so not very long away. Okay, so at a high level, what does the new Act change? Yes, the new Act is really aimed at putting the focus on the aged care residents, the people who actually need care. Um, So, for example, it sets out clear rights for aged care residents and also people receiving home care, and it puts in place some some more effective complaints resolution systems. Um, It also does this new thing where, where it allocates residential care places to the person, to the resident themselves, rather than to the aged care provider, as is currently the case. And that is designed to provide more choice between aged care facilities and to encourage competition to lift the standard of aged care facilities. Uh, They're also bringing in um, something called a single assessment program so that um, there'll be just one point where people are assessed whether they need the Commonwealth Home Support Program or home care packages or residential aged care rather than having, you know, ACAT team or regional assessors depending on the type of care that's required, which is the current system. So there's, there's actually a whole raft of changes in this new Aged Care Act. Um, just an observation that like a new act that's aimed at putting the focus on the people needing the care that that to me you know why wasn't it like that all the way along yeah the previous focus was um, uh, more on the funding and the aged care providers and allocating places per provider Mm -hmm. and or facility Um, so yeah it's just it's really probably putting the focus where it should be which is on on the people who require the care Okay, great. Now, I suppose the big question, though, is whether there will be changes to aged care fees and charges. What do we know about this? This is the big question that I keep checking every day because the Royal Commission did recommend changes to the way um, fees and charges and subsidies are paid for aged care. And the government um, did appoint an aged care task force um, to review aged care funding. And we know they provided their final report in December, but it hasn't been released yet. So we're still waiting with bated breath to see what's going to happen. Um, And as part of that review, we know they looked at aged care means testing, what's included in the income and assets tests, also how to fund accommodation costs with the possible phasing out of refundable accommodation deposits. Mm. Um, However, as I mentioned, we we haven't got that final report yet or the government's response to it. When you look in the exposure draft, the chapter on fees and charges just says to be drafted. It hasn't um, been drafted yet. So we are waiting with bated breath to see what's going to be in that one. 
Okay, so don't you love it when the government like, announces a task force? You know, mm. kind of makes it sound like they're going to do something. And when the task force actually provides the report, then they sit on it, don't do anything with it. Anyway, I suppose yeah. that's just something we have to wait because these changes, I think they're coming in, did you say, from the 1st of July 2024? Well, that that is um, the current schedule, but, you know, uh, we'll have to wait and see whether that's what happens. Okay, so and what's happened with the deadline for feedback? Has that been pushed back as well? Yeah, they actually extended it. So it was it did end mid-Feb, but then they extended it to the 8th of March so that everybody can provide their feedback on the new Act. All right, okay, so I suppose we're just going to have to wait and see what happens. That's right. Yes, it will be really interesting to see what the government comes back with. Okay. So when we do that, obviously, uh, you know, for those uh, advisors out there that do a bit of aged care advice, it's going to be quite important for them. So we will certainly be writing articles and doing webinars and all that sort of stuff. So watch this space because we'll certainly be communicating with you when we know, know more about what's happening there. Okay. So I think that about sums it up. Thanks, Tim, Kim and Linda. Um, as we said, uh, if you want to go and check out any of the links that we mentioned during the session, please look in the description at the bottom of the podcast there. Um, otherwise, you can get on to the First Tech site in the first uh, CFS website um, or just give us a call with any questions. Other than that, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the First Tech podcast. Please note these podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors as a source of general information. All scenarios considered during the podcast were purely hypothetical and for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. You should read the relevant product disclosure statement before making any investment decisions and once again consider talking to a financial advisor. While all care has been taken in preparation of this podcast using sources we believe to be accurate and reliable, no person, including Colonial First Aid Investments Limited and Adventist Investments Limited, accepts responsibility for any loss suffered by any person arising from reliance on this information.